If you're a local listener, we want to give a quick shout out to a local business we're obsessed with. Mirror Magic Hair Design, located on McLaughlin Boulevard in Oregon City. I always look forward to my next appointment with Andrea at Mirror Magic Hair Design. She's the owner, and not only is she incredibly personable and funny, she has poured herself into ensuring that Mirror Magic has nice decor, professional hair products, offers fantastic cuts and color, and ultimately that all of her clients are truly happy. They offer a wide array of services, so check them out. She does incredible work, and without a doubt, the amazing results always make my day. Call to schedule at 503-650-0550. You can also find their contact info in our show notes. Hi, Cassie. Hi, Caitlin. Hi, Elise. Did I Hi, say ladies. that right? Yes. Okay. Hi. <laughs> Where's Winston? She is at home. Unfortunately, I am oh. in Portland this weekend. Well, not unfortunately. Oh. I love Portland, but <laughs> she doesn't travel with me. Oh, yeah. we miss her. It's hard to travel <laughs> with pets. It is. Um, like during the pandemic, I was traveling back and forth between Portland and where I live currently in Squim. And it was just a lot for her. Yeah. I took her with me because, you know, I didn't want to leave her. <laughs> but she's she's happy in her home. Oh, <laughs> well, say hi to her for us. Of course. <laughs> Meanwhile, the two most codependent dogs in the world are laying here. They're like lightly dosed with like a melatonin treat and <laughs> they're out. Yeah. They, they're past the novelty after a few minutes of Cassie being here. And now they're just like snoozing out. <laughs> I'm very exciting. Apparently. Yeah. You know what? Um, We've introduced ourselves, but we should probably, uh, this is P and W haunts and homicides. It is. Yeah. And Elise. Yeah. Um, so I am from true crime cat lawyer and I'm super excited to do this collaboration with you guys. I love supporting other Pacific Northwest podcasters. Yes. Yes. I didn't realize how many there were until we started this and started getting into it. And there's so many great ones. Yeah. I love it. It's tough because I think a lot of the things that like kind of put podcasts in front of people, unfortunately are designed to really like show you all the biggest names. And so, I mean, it makes sense, but, um, it'd be nice if there were a little bit more out there that kind of showcased some of the, um, the, the more indie podcasts. Yeah. Yeah. We are both of us <laughs> going to be attending a very exciting event that actually is kind of 
hopefully going to be doing just that. What is it, Caitlin? P and W true crime fest. Yay. Yeah. I'm super excited and it'll be exciting to actually meet all of the podcasters I've been working with in person. Yeah. Yeah. Seriously. It's very exciting. I'm, I'm very (laughs) excited. I'm a little off kilter today. I'm still a little bit sore from my third jab yesterday. So <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Glad you're not feeling it. I like, know. Yeah, like yeah, too much. We'll you know? see. <laughs> yeah. When no I joke. got my first two, it was mostly like my arm pain that I had. Yeah. And it was just, it was definitely terrible, but I'm glad that I got vaccinated. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the next. Yeah. I'm done with that. Oh my gosh. You should have seen me. You would never guess that I'm a true crime podcaster. If you saw my face when I have to get a shot. (laughs) Big baby. Wow. (laughs) Who is this woman? She looks like she's about to start crying. (laughs) All right. Well, are we doing a tarot reading? Uh, you know, I talked to Elise, when we first started um, kind of planning the collaboration and she said, I am really scared of tarot and I don't want to do oh. it. <laughs> that's just kidding. I was like, that's just kidding. Fine. Everyone has their own. <laughs> totally Josh. And she had, she has no idea because it was all like communication between the two of us. So she's like, oh yeah, <laughs> she's trying not to be disappointed. I'm out of the loop. <laughs> all right. Well. Uh, I'll let you do the honors and then we can get right into the intro. You have the cards over there. Oh, so we are doing the tarot. Yeah, we are. I was totally pulling your leg. (laughs) I'm so full of it. So we have our nice tarot deck here. I do have a nice and (laughs) pre-cleanse. Yes. We're gonna shuffle they are the that is the hardest deck to shuffle. Like I, I want to just like stick them in a bag, like in the dryer or something. Like, I don't, I don't know how I can break these bad boys in, but I'm going to do some research. Cause I have such small hands. Like here's the tarot book. Like I can barely like palm it like this. So <laughs> it's definitely a running joke that I can barely shuffle the deck <laughs> and I can barely shuffle it, which is like, I'm pretty good at shuffling. So yeah. <gasps> Cut the cards. Okay. It's always reversed. You you know, (laughs) it really is. It's like the cards always know that we don't have the reverse interpretation in one of the manuals, (laughs) like one of our interpretation books. So it's always without fail. It is the queen of swords in reverse. And it is this beautiful queen sitting on like a, looks like a stone throne. There's like a bird and a butterfly on it. She's got a sword. Okay. So I'm going to read the, uh, the little book, that interpretation, and then we'll go to the big book for kind of a more in-depth. Do you want to look for the queen and sure. that gay? Okay. The queen has unflinching perception and can cut to the truth of the matter in seconds. She can be blunt, brutally honest, and very forward. But just because she's truthful doesn't mean she's lacking compassion and humor. She's still understanding because she can truly see the entire situation for what it is. 
if you're the queen, it's time to set your emotions aside and try to view things intelligently with clarity and honesty. Okay, so that's not our reverse interpretation, but I can't find it. (laughs) You're so funny. Every time you're like, I don't, I I don't know. I'm lost. Here we go. Flipped right to her. (laughs) I loosened it up for you. Yeah, 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 yeah. Of course, of course, of course. Okay, so in the reverse, this is short and sweet. Um, It says malice, bigotry, artifice, prudery, bail, deceit. Well, now. (laughs) Yikes, guys. Um, I feel like this probably relates. Yeah, you don't know anything about the case still for this one. I know a little bit. A little bit, because I had to do some research. research. I couldn't avoid some of the reading. I don't know all the in-depth things, though, so. Hmm. This is interesting. Okay. So this is just from like the description of the card. It says it suggests familiarity with sorrow. It does not represent mercy and her sword, notwithstanding, she is scarcely a symbol of power. Hmm. Interesting. All right. Well, we'll get into that when we're yeah, done here. I can't wait to get back to that. Kyle's Peruge. Okay. So who wants to reveal our topic for today? Or should I just go into like the talk about the building and yeah then you i guys can go ahead and on. give us the history and okay. then when you're done uh let me know give me a cue because you know me i'm you're like <laughs> it can't be a subtle one uh <laughs> i'll poke you in your yeah vaccine spot yeah. Oh, <laughs> i couldn't even sleep on my side last night oh but i tense yeah. right before it happens i know i do i can't help it <laughs> yeah Okay, so here we go. Yep, just give me a cue and then I'm going to get right into it. (laughs) Okay, so today I'm going to be telling you a little bit of history. There is a theater in downtown Portland, Oregon on 8 North, on 8, (laughs) at 8 Northwest 6th Avenue, and it's called the Roseland. Have you guys been there? Never heard Mm -hmm. of it. I've never been there. Just really? kidding. I've been there a bunch. <laughs> oh, okay. Like I've heard of it, but I've never been You've there. You've never been to the no. And now like, I want to go. Yeah. Yeah, for yeah. sure. She, of course. She <laughs> of course she wants to go there now. <laughs> the area it sits in, we've talked about before. It's Old Town Chinatown, which I don't know if anybody remembers, but we talked about it in the Raven's Manor episode. Um, I'm not going to get into it today like all of the details of old town Chinatown, but it was a hot spot for the Shanghai tunnels. Have you heard of those Elise? I have. Yeah. I don't know a whole lot about them, but yeah, <laughs> everybody's heard something. About yeah. yeah. Um, I think I just bumped the mic. Sorry guys. So in the Shanghai tunnels, they supposedly captured people, forced them to work on the ships. So already like a lot of creepy, bad vibes and history in this particular area of Portland. And like, again, we will 100% deep dive in on that at some point in like a full episode, maybe even a two-parter because there's a lot. (laughs) So So this building was originally a saloon, Uh a saloon, but in 1922, the, oh shoot, I did not look up how to say this word. I cannot say that word. Apostolic. 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 Yep. Okay. Thank you guys. I suck at pronouncing things. Okay. (laughs) 
<laughs> it's a weird word. Like, where would you like apostolic okay. use it in a sentence <laughs> in 1922 the apostolic faith church bought the property they demolished the original building and constructed a two-story building that stands there today i think it's kind of pretty funny that they turned a saloon into a church <laughs> <laughs> um the top floor of this building where is where they held like all of their services and stuff um, it had a stage that could hold orchestras and choirs. So it was really built with acoustics in mind, which definitely lends to the theater it is today. That tracks. Yeah. So they actually hung a neon sign on the side of the building, like this big neon sign that says, Jesus, the light of the world. Pretty flashy. <laughs> I kind of almost wonder if they they like wanted people to know, like, this is not a saloon anymore. This is a church. <laughs> They want the messaging to be clear. Yeah. So in 1981, a man named Larry Hurwitz. Did I say that right? Based on everything I've read, Hurwitz. Okay. A man named Larry Hurwitz bought the building, tore that Jesus sign right down, and then (laughs) the next year opened the Starry Night, which was a pretty poppin' nightclub, which again hits my funny bone from saloon to church to nightclub. Yeah. (laughs) The Oregonian. The Oregonian actually called Hurwitz a larger than life leader in the Portland's music scene. They had some pretty big names performing there, but capacity, capacity, (laughs) but capacity was less than a thousand people. So it's pretty small for like a venue. Um, The Starry Night closed in 1991 and reopened the next year with a new owner and a new name, the Roseland Theater, as we know it today. The Roseland still does not have a very large capacity to cap- why can I say that word? Capacity. The Roseland still does not have a very large capacity at all. Uh just 1400, around 1400 people. I'm, su- I'm surprised it's even that many. Yeah, really? Yeah. Because I haven't like been a lot. In it, but yeah. <laughs> it feels really small to me, but I haven't been there. So yeah. I have questions for the fire marshal. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and it is standing room only too, unless you're over 21 and lucky enough to get like a first come first serve balcony seat, you're going to be like standing. Um, let's see. But as their website states, it quote features a large stage arena level production and superb acoustics and sight lines. Is that true? Ladies? <laughs> I don't I think so. Superb. I don't know. I mean, I think it's great for the size of the venue that it is. Yeah. Yeah. The I will venue. say the site, the sight lines part, I think is more That's accurate. Yes. Yeah. I, yeah. Yeah. I would agree. I was like, uh, I don't want to like say anything bad about like contradict the other pieces, right. but I feel like because if you're standing I just don't see how the sight lines could be very very good but <laughs> but they actually yeah they're not bad oh I think, okay for that, t- for that type of venue interesting yeah. well, we're no, going I definitely have to go because <laughs> yeah. so this venue has had its fair share of big names performing there uh I'm gonna list uh just a couple like little names so uh fog hat Ray Charles, Bob Dylan, Miles Davis, Tina Turner, The Misfits, The Pixies, Snoop Dogg, The Red Hot Chili Peppers, Pearl Jam, freaking Prince. Who dat? (laughs) Bye. Get out of here. Also, Billie Eilish. I had to throw that in. She was there. Um, 
gosh. So they don't just do music there. They also have like cage fighting events. Just FYI, in case anyone wanted to know. I thought that was interesting. Did did not know this. Yeah. Nope. Right. <laughs> so that is all I have on the building of the Roseland. Wow. You're welcome. All right. Well, you learn something new every day. Am I right? <laughs> all right. So we are actually going to start by talking about uh, the building at the time that it was still known as the Starry Night. Uh, so this was January 23rd of 1990 in Portland, Oregon. The Starry Night at the time was, you already kind of said it, one of the biggest music clubs in Portland, yes. but it was closed that night. Uh-oh. So we're talking about the case of Tim Moreau today. Ooh. Ooh. He had grown up in Algiers, a small town in Louisiana. He was raised by his fiercely loving parents, Mike and Penny. I love the name Penny. I do too. They just really seem like all around good humans. He was a Cub Scout from age eight until he eventually became an Eagle Scout. So super wholesome. Oh, yeah. Yes. He took up the violin at a really young age as well, which is something I always wanted to do. You got to have talent for the violin. Yeah. I know. That's why I didn't do it. I was like, oh, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) You don't take that up lightly. No. (laughs) (laughs) But at Christmas time, he would go door to door with his violin to play Christmas carols for his neighbors. Stop it. That's so cute. I know. It's so sweet. So basically, Tim was your run of the mill, good old country boy um, in New Orleans on a family trip. He was exposed to a broader variety of rich musical genres because music was his passion. Um, His father reflected that he seemingly became a little bit restless in his teens growing up in such a conservative area. I don't know if you knew this, but apparently small towns in Louisiana are relatively conservative. Mm. What? Typically, (laughs) you know, just broad strokes. Yeah. Uh, He was far more liberal than most of the people around him. His musical taste began to become increasingly eclectic as a teen um, because apparently West Coast grunge or rock and roll is pretty wild if you grew up in Algiers, Louisiana. It's the devil's music. (laughs) I had to (laughs) say. Okay, so this is really funny because then as I'm like kind of reading about that, and I saw like snippets of interviews with his parents where they talked about him and about that specifically. I'm like, I'm just basically picturing the town in Footloose. No music here. Oh, I was like, and just like baby, nobody puts Tim in a corner. <laughs> oh my God. He had big dreams. <laughs> yes. 80s movies. They're 80s yeah. movies, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the best. Am I bumping stuff? I don't think so. Okay. I'm sorry. I'm fidgety. I've got like a migraine. So I'm like. No, you're good. I'm real I fidgety. just assume. A thousand percent of the time that I am the one being problematic. (laughs) I'm like, you're signaling to me. You're like, stop bumping stuff. (laughs) Uh, 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 Today 
it's me. It's fine. We're right on task, you guys. <laughs> this is going well. <laughs> he applied to Reed College in Portland and was accepted to his delight, which, I mean, Reed is a pretty, I mean, prestigious, I would say, for, you know, as far as local colleges go. Tim moved to Portland to be a part of the music scene here. His family was actually thrilled for him. Aww. I feel like if you're, you know, you have this close-knit family, that would be hard to see him move yeah. basically across the country, but they were really happy for him. Aww. And he was looking forward to living in a more inclusive, free-thinking, and artistic community because apparently word has reached the South and the East Coast about us guys. <laughs> <laughs> we're getting famous. Yeah. <laughs> Um, he was ready to broaden his horizons and his parents were, you know, they were cautiously optimistic. Um, he moved from that small town, Algiers, um, and just kind of to compare, that's a population of about 25,000 compared to Portland, um, a population of about 550,000. Wow. Yes. So, okay. I mean, it's a big shift for him. Mm-hmm. Um, Obviously, those numbers, I, I think, are based on the 90s. I think those are way, way yeah. higher, probably in both places. Oh, yeah. Um, but that's the span of time that we're looking at. So I kept their 90s figures. Um, besides, I'm pretty sure even now, Portland really, I would say, most likely outpaces Algiers in terms of population. I would I'm going to so. guess that hasn't changed. <laughs> Just going to go out on a limb. And- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so... All right, so this uh, feels like a good time to tell you, creepy people, that Tim wasn't someone you might describe as street smart. That's according to the people in his life that knew him well. While attending Reed College, Tim hosted his own show on the campus radio. I know. So cute. That's cool. He's like, I'm a DJ now. (laughs) A radio DJ. Yeah. Because the other type of DJ was probably... I don't know. That's not coming up through the ranks yet, right? That's like a 2000s thing. I don't know. We don't know anything. Oh, like the DJ. Yeah, I I see what you mean. Yeah, like, (laughs) you know, boots and pants and boots and pants. This is why people tune in for the (laughs) Patreon videos. (laughs) Do with that visual what you will. Eventually, after two years at Reed College, his grades begin to decline. Um, He was basically just spending a lot more time, you know, working on whatever musical endeavors and uh, I would say non-academic activities in the music scene. Um, They're more fun. Yeah. I mean, he just was he was like, I don't care about these books. (laughs) Uh, he decided to take a leave of absence so that he could more actively pursue his passion for a career in the industry. Uh, his parents were initially, as you can probably guess, a little, little concerned about this choice because, uh, duh, parents yeah. really would like you to stay in school. Typically, it's just, you know, once you stop, a lot of people don't go back. Um, yeah uh but tim was convinced that his studies just weren't really preparing him for the type of future that he wanted the career that he was hoping for uh they reticently accepted his decision but they did let tim know that he would have to find work because he had to help support himself uh during that leave of absence which 
seems super fair. Um, I'm going to call my parents as soon as we're done here and tell them I am taking a leave of absence. (laughs) I would like them to make up the other half. We'll just see if they fall for it. Yeah. They're like, didn't you go through seven years of school already? I feel like we remember that. (laughs) It was all a dream. Yeah. So the good news is he was able to find a job really quickly. Actually, he was super motivated. So got that going for him. In fact, the job that he landed, he believed would line up perfectly with the plans that he had for his future and his career in the music industry. So major score for Tim. He sets his sights on the starry night down on Burnside, now known as the Roseland. Ever heard of it? Just Uh, today. Yeah, just (laughs) just today. (laughs) This is brand new information. (laughs) The club owner, Larry Hurwitz, was well-known by almost everyone in the Portland music scene. Tim, pretty bold move here. He introduced himself to Larry and was offered a job in publicity for the venue on the spot. Nice. Yeah. I thought, like, good for you. Get it, Tim. Yeah. (laughs) He worked diligently to publicize the various acts performing at the Starry Night, posting flyers, Cause that's back when people posted flyers <laughs> a lot, <laughs> placing ads in, do you guys remember, uh, there used to be these things called newspapers. What? <laughs> newspapers. Never heard of them. Yeah. So weird. Right. <laughs> uh, so he placed ads to draw attention to the shows. Um, he loved the job by all accounts. It was something he really enjoyed. Obviously he was passionate about music and he felt like he was learning a lot. Um, He also bonded with Larry, who seemed to be quite fond of him. And actually, it seemed like really pretty readily took on the role of mentoring him. Oh, that sounds sweet. I know. Love that for Tim. Though Tim may have felt like he was learning a lot from Larry, it's also apparent that the perspective of a young man with a more timely and broad taste in musical genres was an asset to Larry and his business. Because he was kind of more like into bluesy and like old school rock and roll type music. And apparently the kids were just like, no, we're not really having it. The kids. Yeah, (laughs) the kids. You know what the kids say. They say things like cap and shoosh. (laughs) That's for Christopher. (laughs) Uh, Larry was eager to benefit from Tim's ideas. Seems like kind of a cool boss, right? I mean, it's not very often that as somebody who's really just first starting out, you're really young. I mean, for all intents and purposes, pretty inexperienced. And your boss just actually like listens to your ideas. He starts implementing them. I mean, I thought that was pretty cool. (laughs) That's pretty cool. So Tim very quickly became a highly valued employee. Uh, Larry was particularly touched because Tim being the sweetheart that he was, threw a surprise birthday party for him with a bunch of the employees at the Starry Night. That is so sweet. You know, so pure. However, the other employees didn't seem to really take to Tim as readily Hmm. because they're like, you're so nice. It's gross. I know. Where did you come from? (laughs) (laughs) Some of them just couldn't relate to him uh, with his wholesome upbringing and demeanor 
which I mean, I, I guess I get it. They just came from very different backgrounds, but like, he was nice. Like, just be nice. To yeah. The guy. Yeah. Jerks. <laughs> um, <laughs> it also seems likely that the new guy garnering so much attention from the boss may have caused some jealousy. Yeah. That's what I was thinking. They Jealous. were peanut butter and jelly. <laughs> <laughs> So let's introduce at least one of these gems that Tim worked with. George Castanola. I don't even care if I'm saying that right. I'm pretty sure I am, but I actually don't care. (laughs) Um, In particular, had a checkered past. Okay. (laughs) Uh, In years past, when his home had been raided by law enforcement, he fired at an officer. Oh, my God. Which you should not do. Um, no. Yeah. It, I have yet to hear of a case where that ends well. No. So I just, you know, friendly piece of advice. Uh, somehow he was able to get a plea bargain, but as a result of that incident, he was a convicted felon. Mm -hmm. He was a soundboard engineer at the starry night. And he was also basically Larry's second in command, his right hand man. Um, all that jazz. Not anymore. Mm. One thing the entire staff had in common was their fierce loyalty to Larry, uh, which is super cool, but I could have done, uh, I watched a, a section of documentary. I think I kind of already <laughs> told you guys, I, I looked at a lot of stuff for this case, but I could have done with, without how, um, they basically painted the city of Portland as this like really unsavory place <laughs> where many people are just they're shiftless, nefarious individuals. Oh my gosh. Like, <laughs> I was like, okay, this is pretty old. Like, I wonder what, like, if they were recording this today, what would they be saying about us? I don't yeah. think we'd like it. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, anyways, just side mm. note, I don't know, ID, maybe, you know get it together. Um, as if the city and everyone here was basically out to get Tim because he's this naive country bumpkin right from the get go. They're just like, we're going to get him. Uh, look, we can't all be angels living in wholesome bedroom communities, but I think Portland and plenty of people that live here are awesome. Uh, yeah. ID. (laughs) (laughs) Are we going to have a Twitter going? (laughs) We don't even have a Twitter yet. (laughs) We probably, we've been told we need one. I don't know. We don't know how to Twitter. It's garbage. It's you'll, you'll pick up, pick up and get the hang of it. I've heard it's full of hot garbage juice. Yes. Yes. Okay. We're just not ready to dive into hot garbage juice yet. (laughs) That's definitely the place you want to go, though, if you want to hear how shitty Portland is. Okay. Oh, (laughs) God. She's like, brace yourselves. (laughs) Gird your loins. (laughs) All right. So after many months of dedicated and respectful service to Larry, because duh, Tim, uh, Tim asked for a raise, which the nerve of him... How dare he? (laughs) So here, this is like crazy to me because I had to like literally read and reread. And I looked to make sure that this was like the number that I was seeing in more than one source. Because I'm like, no, no, no. At the time, Larry had been paying him $500 a month. And the kid basically worked around the clock. So honestly, that barely qualifies as a paid internship. So shame on you, Larry. Yeah. 
So being the uh, super awesome boss that he was, Larry turned him down. Tim didn't want to risk being replaced. So he dropped it. He was like, oh, that's fine. Like, no, you're right. I totally hate raises. Like, ew. (laughs) Money. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) To put this in perspective, I looked it up and $500 back then is basically equal to about 900 or $950 today a month. That's not, which you're not living in Portland with that kind of money. (laughs) I know she read my mind. My notes literally say, I don't know anyone living their best life in Portland on $950 a month. (laughs) No. And let's be honest. I think the cost of living here is way more outrageous than it was back then. So I stand by what I said, Larry, not cool. (laughs) Um, Now, in January of 1990, the Starry Night was about to be uh, hosting, for the love of, get it together. I know. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Now, in January of 1990, the Starry Night was going to be the venue hosting a John Lee Hooker concert. Ooh. I don't know who that is. I don't either. (laughs) (laughs) I know of him, but I just kept giggling. (laughs) Hooker. (laughs) I'm like, we're not supposed to say that anymore. Oh, wait, that's his name. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Just a bit of fun. (laughs) It was a big show because clearly everyone's heard of him, right? Yep. <laughs> so the venue partnered with a local promotion company, Monkey Presents. Ooh. Never heard of them, Monkey? but moving on. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> Obviously, pretty much anyone that lives here locally has guaranteed heard of Monkey Presents, I think. I um, haven't. <laughs> oh. What is that? What is it? I go to a lot of concerts. <laughs> oh, okay. whatever. Well, I did <laughs> in another life, another decade. <laughs> Before the quarantine times, <laughs> gather around the fire. I'll tell you a story. <sighs> okay. Uh, tickets for the concert would be sold through a third party, which is pretty typical, I guess, for a show of that caliber, even back then. Um, I didn't really realize that. I assumed that back then it was kind of still the style where you like physically have to go or you like call, you you actually get on the phone and you talk to a person to purchase tickets Weird. directly through the venue, which is so gross. <laughs> um, <laughs> can I text them? Glad that's over. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so on Friday, January 19th, the owner of Monkey Presents, Mike Quinn, was a bit puzzled to hear on the radio that additional tickets for the sold out show were available through the venue. Huh. Weird. I wonder where those tickets came from, you guys. Uh, Just a reminder for our younger listeners, the radio is what we all listen to before streaming services like Spotify and Amazon Music. (laughs) I have not listened to the radio and I can't even tell you how long. (laughs) So sad. I do sometimes. I like 94.7. It's always on a commercial. Like, literally. It's true. Yeah, you're Ninety-four seven has a lot less commercials. They they're pretty good. Yeah, they're awesome. They okay, Shout I have a ch- out. sponsor I have a- us. Yeah. <laughs> After hearing about the additional tickets, Mike began to suspect that counterfeit tickets were being sold for the events. Hmm. His suspicions actually drove him to show up at the Starry Night on the night of the concert. Which I was like, "That's interesting." Like the owner of this promotion company is like, 
this is super sus. I think I'm just going to show up and see what happens. And I was like, what does he expect to happen? Oh my God. (laughs) I don't know. His suspicions are about to be confirmed, y'all. Uh-oh. Mike sees people excited for the show being notified that their tickets are invalid in the line outside. Can you imagine? I would be like turning beet red and crying. And probably kicking the outside of the building. <laughs> That's like know. my biggest yeah. fear. <laughs> I know. Isn't that awful? Yeah. So Mike is no dummy. He suspects that an employee printed the counterfeit tickets to pocket some extra cash. Uh-oh. Which I was like, That's super smart. But also super fucked up and rude. Yeah. <laughs> not a fan. <laughs> also definitely not employee of the month material. No. <laughs> This controversy obviously brings some unwanted attention to the club owner as some angry would-be concert goers fume that the tickets were not only bought directly from the venue, but some even claim from Larry himself. Uh-oh. Lair, lair. <laughs> Follow lair, <up> bear. <laughs> Larry, you're even more of a scoundrel than we thought. Uh-oh. Of course, selling counterfeit tickets is absolutely a crime. And as previously mentioned, also totally rude. Uh, Mike Quinn, the owner of the promotion company Monkey Presents, is furious because a scandal like this could certainly paint his company in a negative light as well. He's promoting it. Yeah. He's like, uh, Larry, I am not happy at all. Direct quote. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> I'm pissed. Yeah. Super pissed. Uh, as he presses for answers, Larry initially pleads ignorance. He's like, oh, oh, oh. Just like that, that is a drug yeah. quote. Yeah. <laughs> I got a hold of leaked audio from that conversation. Wait, can we play that again? <laughs> So obviously, you know, which of course is pretty lame coming from the owner. Um, However, he eventually does something unbelievably fucked up and accuses Tim of having been behind the counterfeit ticket scheme. I don't buy it for a second. Yeah. Tim, the Eagle Scout? No. (laughs) Okay. Absolutely not (laughs) playing his violin for Christmas carols. No. (laughs) No. Larry, get out of here. Of course, Tim is shocked that Larry would make such an accusation when he's demonstrated his loyalty and dedication to both Larry and the venue for months. So Tim calls his parents, uh, telling them basically that he's probably going to have to leave his job at the starry night. So they're, of course, kind of surprised and a little bit concerned. He's raved about this place, his boss, his job. So what could possibly motivate him to suddenly quit? Uh, But Tim won't elaborate at all with them in that initial call on any specifics of the events of that previous night, basically telling them it was just a sticky situation and that he had an argument with his boss. Chillingly, he told his father, don't worry, dad, I'm 21 years old. I think I can handle this. Oh, which I'm sure haunts his father to this day as he replays that conversation in his mind. Yeah. Um, Tim told his father he had an appointment to meet with his boss to discuss the situation. 
And they honestly just expected they'd hear more from Tim about what was happening, you know, soon after, probably the next day, you know, sometime soon. But Tim's parents wouldn't hear from him the next evening, of course, deepening their concern. Though perhaps at that point, I don't know that it would raise any major alarm bells for them just yet. Uh, They called and left messages several times. Eventually, they spoke with his roommate and learned the roommate hadn't seen him in days. Oh, no. In fact, no one had. Oh, no. Can I ask a question real quick? I don't know. I didn't come across this. Um, Are his parents still in Louisiana at this time? They are. Okay. I know. Can you imagine? Like, that's so scary because you can't just go and, like, show up at his apartment to check up on him. I was like, oh, my God. I'm... (sighs) (laughs) it's it would be awful so also just an aside this is in my notes but i just want to drive this home guys if your roommate just suddenly goes can we all maybe agree to be a little bit more proactive yeah (laughs) oh i haven't seen him in a couple of days like if nothing else you should be concerned like what's your plan when the rent comes due bro yeah (laughs) like what the hell Oh my gosh. I just feel like that's really sad that his parents had to like not hear from him for, you know, a few days and leave all these messages and they're not hearing back, not hearing back. And finally the roommate talks to him and they're like, wait, what? Oh, it's awful. So during this time, the news was breaking about the accusation against Tim. The Oregonian reported on the counterfeit ticket story roughly around the same time Tim's parents were made aware that he might actually be missing. Uh, His parents were horrified by these circumstances, so they flew out to Portland and filed a police report. Wow. They're like, don't even pack a bag. We got to go. Bye. Somebody feed the dog. (laughs) (laughs) So (laughs) I was trying to imagine something like funny but also stern that the parents would say like as they're literally running out the door and hailing a cab which i don't think you can do that in louisiana you you don't hail cabs (laughs) they're like portland we're coming and we expect some answers yeah (laughs) we're coming for you yeah (laughs) so stephen baumgarten of the portland police bureau was assigned to tim's missing persons case the detective was aware of the accusation against him for the counterfeit ticket scam so he went to speak with the owner of the starry night pretty good place to start larry said he met with tim on tuesday which at that point was three nights after the ticket scandal at this meeting he said that tim confessed he was behind the ticket scam and offered to take larry to get the money he had been pocketed Hmm. totally believable yeah super convenient Mm -hmm. i need to take a break to um Get a sip of water so that I can swallow that bullshit. (laughs) (laughs) Good one. (laughs) Although apparently Tim was opposed to carpooling. So he's going to take him to go get his money. But he's like, no, 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 no. Let's let's not go together. You take your own car. We're going to take separate vehicles. Larry, you follow me to the location. Okay. Nothing weird about that, right? No. Larry claimed he would have forgiven Tim if he had followed through, but apparently Tim took off on him suddenly and Larry ended up losing his vehicle en route. Weird. Okay. (laughs) So following that bizarre turn of events, Larry claimed he returned to the club 
ordered pizza with George. And Larry said he tried to get in touch with Tim, asking him to return to the club. George backed up that statement made by Larry. Police confirmed aspects of the story, such as the pizza delivery, as well as that Larry had in fact left messages for Tim on his machine. Just a brief aside, um, remember when there was an actual voicemail machine? Mm -hmm. Like a separate device from an actual phone? Yeah. It had a literal fucking cassette tape with recorded (laughs) messages. I literally forgot they ever existed. (laughs) Look how far we've come. (laughs) So far. Anyways, as per usual, I digress. Uh, Larry's whole story checked out based on the preliminary findings in the investigation. Because he ordered a pizza. So like, yeah, legit. Nothing to see here. (laughs) A few days later, additional evidence would be found that appeared to corroborate Larry and George's story when Tim's car was found at the airport. Hey, Cassie. Yes. Well, here's my question. And I'll preface this by saying, so Elise, you uh, have kind of the picture here. Preface this by saying, I know there weren't camera phones in this era, but if you fly out of PDX without taking a picture of your shoes on the carpet, (laughs) did you really even exist in that space? When did they start doing that? I don't know. They, I say they is in like, yeah. I'm not one of those people, uh, but <laughs> so I, sorry guys, if you're not actually from around here in Portland and you have no idea what I'm talking about, look it up. Trust me. It's a thing <laughs> sort of iconic. All right. Anyone from the PNW is all looped in, ready to move on and point out, um, Hey guys, does anyone actually think his car being found at the airport is actually kind of suspicious? He's 21, yeah. working like a dog for a measly salary, but he's going to leave the city and flee home without his car. So this is where I was yeah. like, Elise, I'm going to loop you in on this. Because Cassie, do you remember? We talked about this in another case very mm-hmm. recently. I do. Do you have any idea how expensive airport parking is? <laughs> yeah. Pretty sure if you abandon your vehicle there after enough time passes, you're also going to be looking at towing and impound lot fees. Maybe it's just me, but I just think this narrative reeks of bullshit immediately. I don't know. Maybe I'm just on one about the airport thing after the Joshua Wade case. Yeah. <laughs> like, why are you just abandoning people's cars at the airport? Well, like, that, and it's pretty like obvious when they go say, okay, their yeah. cars at the airport. Let's go see if they flew. Are they documented? Do oh they my have God. A ticket? Like Cassie. It's so easy. You're basically a cop now. I am. <laughs> <laughs> Where's my badge? Yeah, but apparently people began to wonder if this confirmed Tim's guilt as well as George and Larry's story. Because they're like, yeah, totes. He just like, he left. Hmm. Obviously, his car's there, so checks out. <laughs> yeah. Thankfully, the police did check into whether Tim had booked a tippet. A, a, a tippet. tippet. <laughs> <laughs> they did look into whether Tim had booked a ticket with any of the airlines. They found that Tim not only hadn't gone through airport security or boarded a flight that could be documented, but there was also no record of such a purchase. So, well, yeah, here's the thing. You couldn't board a flight without buying a ticket, even in the 90s. Yeah. (laughs) So (laughs) another notable finding was that Tim's apartment did not show any indication that he had planned to leave town. 
items you would assume someone would take with them when leaving town remained in the apartment. So again, not a great story when all of their personal belongings remain and their cars at the airport. Cause it's like, okay, but they would have taken this with it. Yeah. Puzzled hmm. by the mixed signals provided by the various evidence they had gathered, the police revisited their conversations from days prior. Larry's story now has one aspect that just doesn't seem to make sense to Detective Baumgarten. Tim had an older kind of beat up car. And you just know Larry had some sort of sporty dickhead mobile. Mm. So <laughs> dickhead mobile. Yeah. <laughs> it's a technical term. You may not be familiar with it. Yeah. <laughs> So anyway, all of this is to say police speculated that uh, his dickhead mobile would have given Larry an edge in a situation where Tim tried to elude him on the road. So, Mm. Larry, you've got some explaining to do. (laughs) Uh, Still losing an impromptu street race wasn't enough to charge him in connection with Tim's disappearance. (laughs) I'm like, can't you charge him for like racing him? Like, I guess it technically wasn't a race, but yeah, I don't know. Whatever you got to do, throw (laughs) shit at the wall until something sticks. (laughs) They needed more to go on, basically. So moving forward with the investigation, police faced what they described as an impenetrable wall of silence when it came to the employees of the Starry Night. Hmm. Tim's desperate parents remained in Portland and even made a plea on the local news for him to contact them if he was still alive. I literally don't know how his mother kept it together, like saying those specific words, like Tim, if you're still alive. (sighs) Oh, Oh, it hurts. It hurts. So enter Jim Redden, a local reporter who had been investigating the starry night for their questionable business practices, as well as Tim's disappearance. Cause he's like, guys, there's just like, I don't know. There's just like kind of some bad vibes floating around over there. I don't know. I'm going to look into it, okay? I'll get back to you. In fact, he had actually penned a story about Tim titled Missing and Presumed Dead. Oh. Which, uh, yikes, pretty sure that's not what his parents were hoping for. Yeah. But I think they were honestly just glad that his disappearance was getting attention from the press. Um, I think the saying there's no such thing as bad publicity kind of holds true when it comes to missing persons cases. Yeah. Um, His parents and the police were hopeful that by keeping his story alive and on the public's mind, they might get some answers. Unfortunately, the case was already beginning to go pretty cold, like ice cold. Ice, ice, baby. (laughs) Uh, Despite the discouraging lack of new developments in the case, Tim's parents, Mike and Penny, made 17 trips back to Portland in a desperate attempt, obviously, to learn what happened to their son. Yeah. Uh, I hope they were using Miles. Yeah. <laughs> Sadly, for years, oh. there would be no answers. And I'm sure those were absolutely heart-wrenching times. His father described it as a nightmarish experience. Accurate. Seven years after Tim Moreau vanished, police still suspected that Larry knew something about Tim's disappearance, but without any new evidence or witness accounts, they were pretty much stuck. Meanwhile, Jim Redden kept writing about the starry night, eventually prompting the IRS to formally investigate Larry Hurwitz. 
On December 22nd of 1997, Larry is arrested and charged for income tax evasion. They kind of got him like Al Capone style. Oh, like <laughs> seriously, like if you are going to do like anything criminal, don't be fucking around financially because the IRS is like, oh, no, like we take this very seriously. We're going to get you. Yeah. When was that? 97? 97. So like he's it, been missing for seven years and it closed. When did the Starry Night close? Have it, <laughs> have it in my notes here. 91. Okay. I just wanted to like relate that to. Oh, I see. When I the Starry yeah, Night yeah. closed. Yeah. yeah. Um, once he's behind bars, things start to unravel and the loyalty of former Starry Night employees begins to wane because they're like, well, I mean, he's kind of like in jail and stuff. Yeah. So then in August 1998, a previous employee of the Starry Night finally decided to come forward with new information. She stated after Tim disappeared, she had heard that George Castanola was somehow involved. So that's a start. Hmm. Eventually, George's ex-girlfriend turns on him as well. Because, duh, he's your ex, so fuck yeah. that guy. Um, <laughs> so get this. She secretly tapes a conversation with George where he confesses that he and Larry decided to get rid of Tim. Like, get rid of, you know, in the mob Oh, Uh, faced with this evidence, George spills his guts, not only about Tim's disappearance, but also about the counterfeit ticket scheme. Holy shit. Which had been an ongoing and, of course, very lucrative scam. Tim fatally misjudged how serious the situation was uh, that he found himself in, and he wouldn't take the fall for Larry after being accused. Of course, Larry was concerned that Tim would reveal the scam. A group of six people had, in fact, discussed the dilemma, deciding to sacrifice Tim to keep the secret under wraps. Oh, my God. They had a meeting. It was before Zoom, so they did it in person. What? But, like, how six people just get together and they're like, yeah, I don't know, selling these counterfeit tickets, like, we don't want to get caught for that. So, like, we should just, like, (laughs) kill this nice, innocent person. Awful. Larry met with Tim, as he had said, but under completely false pretenses. It was obviously a trap. Larry had told Tim they would figure the situation out when he expressed how upset he was about the accusations swirling around him. They agreed to grab a bite to eat and discuss further, but George had been quietly eavesdropping on the nearby staircase. So creepy. As they got up to leave, George blocked his exit. Larry strangled him with a garrote made from a microphone cord while George held him. They duct taped Tim's face before transporting him in the trunk of a car to bury him in the Columbia River Gorge, where they had already dug a grave two nights prior. Oh, my goodness. Afterwards, they left his car at the airport. (laughs) They had a pizza delivered to the Starry Night. And of course, keeping the receipt to back this up. Pizza! Then they placed calls to Tim, leaving messages inquiring about his whereabouts and why he took off on Larry. Like the police had previously verified. Basically, these people had created whatever evidence they could to back up Larry's story. So until these two women came forward, there was no body, no crime. Wow. I mean, there was definitely a crime, but they just couldn't prove it. Yeah. You know. 
Uh, the group assumed that they had gotten away with Tim's murder and successfully concealed all of the shady business dealings behind the scenes at the Starry Night. So here's how it all shakes out. George Casanola made a deal in November of 1998, pleading guilty to aiding and abetting Larry Hurwitz in Tim's murder and receives 10 years in prison. Larry pleads no contest to the one count of murder in August of 2000, also agreeing to help find Tim's body, which earns him a reduced sentence of 12 years. However, Tim's body has in fact never been found. It's never been found? Nope. His mother in particular was clearly heartbroken to leave Portland and return home from this particular trip without Tim. Years later, it's clear from her appearance in the documentary, this really troubles her. She says, we had to leave him in the woods. Oh, I know. <laughs> I'm not crying. You're crying. That is so sad. I just, that would be so <sighs> heartbreaking. I mean, because they finally have hope after so many years of being able to like bring him home and, you know, bury him closer to his family. As you, I don't know if you can hear, but Molly's really upset about She's it too. She's very upset. She's having a nightmare Aww. from listening to the story. <laughs> My dog's over there going. Ah. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> Poor so. Heartbreaking as that is, his father, Mike, said, I guess that's where the story ends. As far as Tim's idyllic childhood, his wonderful volunteerism, his great leadership skills, his creativity, his love of music. And we continually ask what might have been. But we've come to learn that his life had such depth and meaning and joy to it. That's what we want to remember. Mm. And you guys. If you haven't already, go ahead and pause this now. Go grab some Kleenex. Okay. Are you about to read something sad? It's really sweet, but yeah, you're going to ball your eyes out. All right. His parents tell a story in the documentary that's so heartwarming. I can almost feel mine again. In 2000, roughly a decade after Tim's murder, a new family moved into their neighborhood. They told Tim's parents their realtor had told them one story in particular that convinced them to move to Algiers to raise their family. The story that sealed the deal was of a little redheaded boy who came around to the neighborhood houses to play carols for the neighbors with his violin at Christmas. After serving his time, Larry Horwitz, 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 I don't know, whatever, who cares? Larry was released from prison on April 29, 2008. And now we are about to get lawyered. Cat lawyered. Oh, snap. <laughs> <laughs> I am so excited. <clears throat> yes. <laughs> so first of all, I want to start off by saying, please don't take anything I'm about to say as legal advice. It's not. <laughs> um, and I don't actually practice criminal law. So definitely check out my sources for more information. I do my research, but I don't practice in this area. So there's a lot of legal issues that came up in this case. And I pulled out some of the more interesting ones. So I'm going to start at the beginning with the tax evasion charges, just because that's something I've never really dived into. So the IRS obviously is in charge of your federal taxes 
And they define tax evasion as the failure to pay or the deliberate underpayment of taxes. So usually there's some kind of scheme that's involved where you're misrepresenting your income in some way to the IRS to avoid paying them or avoid paying how much you supposedly owe. So usually this involves underreporting your income, inflating your deductions so you get more money than you're supposed to, or, you know, the classic hiding money in an offshore bank account. Yeah. <laughs> did you uh, research how you can do that by chance? I did not. <laughs> I don't need yeah. more um, evidence in my browser history <laughs> that's questionable. So. Yeah. <laughs> um, so there's basically two different kinds of tax evasion, which I had no idea. Um, so one is referred to as evasion of assessment and the other's evasion of payment. So invasion of assessment is just a fancy way of saying that you're basically trying to keep everything hidden from the IRS so that they don't tax you properly. Um, just kind of letting them think that you don't have as much as you do so that you're not in you know, the highest income bracket that's going to get you the most tax. And then invasion of payment is you've already been assessed your tax liability and you're basically trying to hide everything so you don't have to pay your tax liability. So you're trying to like hide your assets so they can't come after and get them from you, which, you know, I mean, no, I wouldn't do that. I would never, but I mean, it goes back to like what you said. (laughs) It's like what you said earlier. If you're going to, again, not legal advice, but if you're going to commit a crime, keep up on your taxes because the IRS is always going to find you (laughs) and that's how you're going to go down. You might get away with murder. You might get away with robbery, but you're not going to get away with tax evasion. So pay your taxes. We don't care about the dead body. We just want, no, we just, we just want our money. (laughs) Well, I think sometimes it's just like a confluence of forces, right? Because if you're involved in like, a violent crime, then you've got like the tax piece of it. You've got multiple government agencies that are looking at you, journalists yeah. looking at you. Just a matter of time, Lerbear. <laughs> <laughs> so a couple things to note about tax evasion. There's not really a defense to it in terms of like, just because you thought that you didn't break the tax law, that's not a defense. Um, yeah. It's... <laughs> They usually don't accept ignorance of the law as an excuse. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Um, So it is a felony, which, you know, is bad news bears for someone going forward. You can be punished by both fines, imprisonment, or both. Um, So I'm not quite sure what the total fines were back in the day when Larry was arrested, but now they're up to $250,000, which is on top of whatever taxes you owe as well. So that's a shitload of money. Um, (laughs) Technical terms. (laughs) Yes. Plus, you know, you can be faced with up to five years of prison. So you could be faced with, you know, however much you owe in taxes plus $250,000 plus up to five years in prison, which not super worth it to me, but. Oh, that's (laughs) crazy for just not like, just do your taxes, man. Like. Yeah. Um, So one of the things I read in the sources I looked at was that he only served about a year in jail for the tax evasion charges after he pled guilty. So 
it wasn't quite clear to me, but it was probably some kind of agreement. Um, and I didn't read at all, like how much, if at all, he was fined. Um, I'm sure he was. Cause again, they love their money. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but you know, based on the person that Larry was and is, I'm sincerely doubtful that he ever paid back anything that he owed. So man, yeah, <laughs> Larry is not good for it. No. Yeah. <laughs> so my next couple topics are the big ones for this case and they're the no body homicide and no contest, please. And so those ones are like super interesting to me. You mentioned Tim's body has never been found, unfortunately, but of course it is widely assumed that he was murdered and we do, you know, have the confession and other evidence of that. We just don't have his actual body um, to kind of definitively prove that he didn't just drive to the airport, leave his car and take off to who knows where. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So, but technically for a murder conviction, you don't have to have a body. That's not one of the elements of the crime, but these kinds of cases can be super difficult to prove because they're usually built primarily on circumstantial evidence. And, you know, I think nowadays that's a little bit easier case to make in a no body homicide case because there's literally a camera everywhere. I mean, everybody and their mom has a ring doorbell. Everybody has a camera on their phone, like traffic cameras, like you're constantly being surveilled, not to mention, I think, I don't know if this is true of you guys, but for me, if I went, you know, several days without posting on social media, at least on my podcast account, like, I think people would be like, um, what's going on? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You know, so, and I think you guys have probably heard in like different cases that you've come across that, you know, people have very, um, telling ways of texting to people. Like I'm a very like one sentence, like, but in like 50 texts, like, (laughs) like thoughts. (laughs) Um, and I love emojis. So if they're, I'm not a, it's weird. I'm a lawyer, but I also like, I'm not a huge fan of punctuation in text. Cause I'm like, it's just a text. It's not, yeah. <laughs> it's not official. Yeah. It's um, more informal. Yeah. So if there was like a text message that, for example, my boyfriend got that was like all these punctuation marks and like no emojis, I think he would be like, mm, did this really come from her? <laughs> like, yeah. this doesn't really sound like her. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So then, you know, we also have better access to kind of credit cards and banking statements. And then, of course, cell phone data. But none of this was available in the late 90s. Right. When, you know, early 90s when Tim goes missing. And so it's even harder of a circumstantial case to build because there really is no paper trail because we're still just kind of, it's that weird, like, you know, technology time where it's like, it's starting and it's like, you know, getting going, but it's not at all where we are today. It's not really like that precedence. And they did everything that they could to kind of create the paper trail in the opposite direction, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like the pizza receipt. Who keeps that? (laughs) (laughs) My God. You know who does? If anything ever happens to me, a receipt is not proof of anything. Because Christopher (laughs) keeps every receipt he's ever gotten. Really? Yeah. (laughs) It's such a man thing. My boyfriend does the same thing. 
Where I'm does like, why, why do you need this? <laughs> you really need to keep this like receipt from Burger King. No. Right? <laughs> yeah. We don't yeah. want that evidence or else. <laughs> I know. Yeah, I oh actively refuse receipts most of the time. But <laughs> oh, yeah. Organized, very meticulous. <laughs> so there were, you know, kind of some other circumstantial evidence available in the case. But I think the biggest problem that they faced was kind of having no physical evidence. Yeah. Like this is a really big deal and nobody. Yeah, no body homicide cases because you still, even if you don't have to show that there's a dead body, you do have to show that someone died. Like, right? right? It makes sense. Like, yeah. someone was murdered. Otherwise, you would be charging them with kidnapping or, you know, something else that's not murder. So the prosecution has to work really hard to make that case. And I think the biggest problem is that. A lot of times when you have the body, you have so much more information. You know, you have usually how the victim died with what kind of weapon you have kind of the approximation of when they died and maybe where they died, you know, based on body temperature and decomposition and all of that. And then you might be able to get some kind of other physical evidence, you know, like DNA or you know, fibers, those kinds of things, but you just don't have that when you have no body. Right. Yeah. Nothing so, you don't have like the, all of those telltale things like, you know, rigor mortis or, uh, lividity, any of that stuff. Cause that's scientifically that can tell you a lot about when, how they, somebody died. Right. So it's, it's definitely an uphill battle to take a nobody case to trial, So that leads me into my next topic, which is the no contest plea. So the official Latin term is nolo contendere, (laughs) which basically means I don't wish to contest. So just to be clear, a no contest plea is not the same as a guilty plea. And that's super important. So when you're pleading not guilty, you're basically saying that you're contesting a particular fact or more than one fact of the case, or you're disputing that you committed the crime at all. When you're pleading no contest, on the other hand, you're not explicitly admitting guilt. So you're not taking any kind of responsibility for the crime. Hmm. But in a no contest case, you still have a conviction for the crime. You just don't have a trial So you don't call witnesses or, you know, present any evidence. So why would someone plead no contest instead of not guilty? You know, like what's, what's the benefit of that? So the primary advantage is that a no contest plea can't be used as an admission of liability if a victim or the family of a victim brings a civil lawsuit against the defendant or the murderer in this case. That's so, interesting. Yeah. So I'm going to use OJ Simpson as an example mm. because I think it's the most well known case and the most well known example of kind of a wrongful death lawsuit. So if he had decided not to take his case to trial and decided to enter a plea of no contest, Nicole Brown and Ron Goldman's families wouldn't have been able to use that plea in the civil trial against OJ. So he basically, you wouldn't have been able to say that he admitted anything 
you know, he just pled no contest. And obviously OJ's case is a little bit different because there was a lot of evidence in the criminal trial that still probably could have been used in the civil trial. But at least that fact of him pleading no contest doesn't mean he's admitting guilt or innocence. He's essentially admitting nothing, right? except that you have enough evidence to convict me of the crime. Yeah. Wow. It's on par (laughs) with like the title of his book too. Like if I did it, cause I'm Mm -hmm. not going to say that I did, but like, (laughs) there's a lot of convincing evidence. Oh yeah. So So it's super interesting. And I think that's, like I said, the most important reason why people do it. They don't want to have that liability for a civil trial just kind of making it a little bit harder for the families to kind of make the connection. So when I was researching, I actually found kind of the Oregon checklist of what they go through when they're accepting no contest pleas, because you can't just enter a plea of no contest and it's done and over with. You actually have to go through this checklist and get more information from the defendant and make sure that they understand what they're giving up. And then sort of at the end, you have to reconfirm that they actually like want to do this. So unusual. Most people probably wouldn't understand it. You'd want to make sure they do. Yeah. (sighs) Yeah. You know, obviously your, your criminal defense attorney is supposed to explain all that to you, but I think there's a difference between explaining that and understanding it. You know, (laughs) it's like you could explain astrophysics to me, but I'm probably not going to understand you. (laughs) That is a great example. (laughs) What language are you speaking? (laughs) Um, So basically, when you enter a no contest plea, you're giving up your right to a jury trial, your right to confront any witnesses. So then the judge tells you kind of what the maximum possible sentence is that can result. Obviously, um, the person may or may not have that imposed on them. It depends on what they've decided in the plea agreement. But, you know, it's kind of just looking at, okay, if you actually went to trial, like, here's how much time you could be faced with so that they understand that. Right. So then, you know, it's, it's important in a criminal trial. I know that it kind of bothers a lot of people that, you know, defendants do have rights, but I really like to kind of frame it in the sense of putting myself in their shoes. And I would want the most protections for my rights, especially if, you know, I was innocent or wrongfully accused. Um, So it is super important to kind of just make sure that, because we want to do it for everybody, you know, and kind of just apply it that way. So the, the judge has to ask, you know, was your lawyer effective they want to know, like, did you have adequate representation? They don't want to see, you know, ineffective assistance of counsel motions yeah, filed. No one wants to see that. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's just time consuming and it just, it does nobody any good. So the judge also has to be satisfied that the defendant is entering this no contest plea voluntarily. So, you know, nobody's forcing their hand to the fire and saying, you have to do this or else kind of a thing. And then the last thing is the prosecution basically gives like a mini trial where they set out, you know, what evidence they have 
that they would, you know, present at a trial if it were to happen. And so it's really just kind of talking about, is there actually like enough here to make this like no contest plea appropriate? You know, if you have like really thin evidence, maybe it's better that the person's pleading no, not guilty, you know? Yeah. It's like a mock trial. Mm -hmm. That's cool. I want to, I want to go to one. (laughs) They're super fun. Super interesting. (laughs) Go to it and be like a standby person, not like in the trial though. Oh yeah. No, I don't want to be like, no, no, no. I have, um, I've judged a mock trial before and they're super fun. Like they, the high schoolers that participate in it are super good. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. It's super interesting. So bringing it back to Tim's case, I think in this case, you know, for prosecutors, it was probably a lot better to kind of go with the no contest plea agreement versus trying to bring a murder trial to fruition. You know, there just wasn't a lot of physical evidence. And I think they might've had a hard time convincing a jury of 12 people that Larry murdered Tim especially back in the early nineties where people are still like, Oh, nobody false falsely confesses. And, you know, he probably just ran off, you know, his car was at the airport. I think, you know, it just, it was a different time and there were still kind of antiquated beliefs about, well, he hasn't actually been seen since that time. And, you know, there's no evidence that he's using his social security number for like a new job or whatever. People just weren't buying that back in the day. Yeah. So I think the biggest thing for Larry in the no contest plea is that he could essentially still remain a coward and not admit to killing Tim, which I think was the big benefit for him. Like he doesn't have to take any responsibility for it. And obviously what you talked about, Larry, that, that tracks yeah. for him. <laughs> he didn't do anything yeah. ever. No, yeah. not at all. <laughs> um, so one of the things that kind of frustrated me about just Larry in general, after he got out of prison in 2008, is that he was able to kind of leave the state repeatedly without permission. And wow. I think That's, you know, sadly evidence of where our criminal justice system is and how broken it is that nobody was really keeping tabs on him. And he actually wasn't supposed to be in California at all because this is where Tim's family currently lives. And so I assume there's like some kind of no contact order in place. So he's not supposed to be near them. But of course, you know, nothing came of this until he was arrested on those drug charges Yeah. But besides not having Tim's body and kind of being able to put him to rest, I think it's also sad that, you know, the family hasn't been able to collect any of their kind of wrongful death settlement from him. Um, They settled in 2001 for $3 million. And from what I read, Larry's only paid like a very small sum of that. Well, it's crazy because, you know, that's where I was like, okay, this is interesting with the no contest plea, because I knew, you know, from researching this case that they had, you know, gotten a civil um, settlement through. And I just thought, well, that's really interesting because obviously I was also seeing, you know, he hasn't paid 
hardly a nickel of it, but I was like, that's just so, I wonder how that's going to work. I was like, wait, I I'm wondering like with the no contest plea, does that mean that they can't file a civil suit? So this whole, all of this is just like, it's such a glimpse into our legal system. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I actually, I'm glad you brought that up because I have a little tidbit on that. So even though he didn't admit liability or, you know, admit guilt or anything like that, they can still kind of use the facts of the case and his conviction, because even though you're entering a no contest plea, it's, you're still being convicted of that crime. And, okay. and so I think that's where it's different from OJ, you know, OJ was acquitted at trial. So they still had a, they still had a really good circumstantial case, I think for the wrongful death, but they couldn't use a no contest plea. They couldn't use, you know, a, him being guilty. Yeah. So they really had to rely on kind of meeting the elements in other aspects. But I think in, in Tim's case, they at least had, okay, we can't use that you've admitted to killing him, but we can use the fact that you've been, you've been convicted of yeah. killing him. Yeah. Pretty strong. <laughs> yeah. Plus it's a, I mean, it's a lesser standard. You only have to pr- prove the preponderance of evidence, which is greater than 50%. So it's much lower than, you know, beyond a reasonable doubt. Wow. The bar's a lot lower. Yeah. Yeah. Which, you know, it makes sense. You want to be able to have families, survivors, you know, kind of bring their charges against them um, in some way. And I think although it would be nice to have the money, I'm sure, I think at the end of the day, just knowing that he's been held both criminally and civilly liable for Tim's death, I think is something that, you know, they can feel somewhat good about. It's a shame though, that, you know, he'll probably get more time for the drug charges than Uh, he got for the murder. I was literally just going to ask that, like, how did he get so little time for the murder? Yeah. You know, I mean, it was just, I think it's just the times, you know, they just, if you have good behavior and you can come up for parole, it's the prisons are overcrowded. Um, even though it's a violent crime, they still didn't have a body technically. And so I'm sure that played into it, but hopefully I haven't bored you guys to death. I know that (laughs) it is so interesting because I did look, um, you know, to find a little bit more information on, um, Larry specifically. And I stumbled on the information about his drug charges and I was like, Oh no, he went back to prison. Yeah, it it was, it was really weird. Um, I came across the fact that he actually rejected a plea deal for the drug charges. And so I'm not really sure why he did that, but (laughs) maybe he liked prison. (laughs) I mean, they were like, but like, we have a lot of evidence. Yeah. Like this is like a very (laughs) clear cut (laughs) case. Wow. Oh my gosh. Crazy. He's cuckoo for (laughs) Cocoa Puffs. I think. Well, that's, that's all I have. So it's over to you guys. I have a couple little things that won't take too long, um, but people do say that the Roseland is haunted by who, who do you guys think 
would haunt the Roseland. I I can't think of anyone. Yeah. Well, I'll read you. <laughs> I'll read you what people see and then you can decide. So uh, PortlandGhost.com actually rated the Roseland as Portland's number one most haunted place. What? Yeah, which I don't, I mean, I don't know how much weight PortlandGhost.com holds with these things, but yeah. they did rate it number one. So, but oh. really like to be ranked number one, there's not a lot of reports of paranormal activity. There's yeah. only a couple little things. So if anyone listening has any stories about the Roseland that would like to share, yeah. definitely email us, let us know. Cause I don't have a lot and I would love more. Yeah. <laughs> PNW Hanson homicides at gmail.com. Okay. Gmail.com. Yeah. Gmail.com. <laughs> I, said I like it. how you said it like it's one word. Gmail.com. I said it so fast. So I was like, wait, did I say it right? <laughs> um, so here's what I was able to dig up about the hauntings. So people report hearing painful moans that sounds like a male. It's like painful moaning and groaning. I don't like it. Yeah. Um, which is icky knowing what we know about what happened. Yeah. Yeah. People have also heard like menacing, talking and whispering, like whoever it is, is very angry. Um, And they do say that, you know, Tim's spirit probably is pissed. Like he was in his prime. He was murdered. Like, yeah, he's probably very angry. But then knowing Tim, like maybe he's not. Maybe he's such a nice spirit. Like he's probably moved on, honestly. Yeah. I think if there's anything like less than wholesome in terms of like paranormal activity there, I don't think it's Tim. Yeah. I don't, I, I didn't think that until like you hearing you like talk about him. Like, I don't think he's the type of spirit that would just hang around being all like cynical. And, you know, I think, I think he probably has moved on. I don't want to think he's stuck there. (laughs) No. So, oh, I was thinking like maybe the, the angry, like talking and like arguing that people hear, maybe that's just like residual energy from like the argument that Tim and Lair Bear had, or like maybe that's, um, Larry and George, is that the other man? Maybe that's them talking or like the meeting that happened. Like, so maybe they're just feeling like all of this energy that has been in the I need a proton pack. (laughs) Yes, you definitely do. We're going to get you one. Yeah. (laughs) So this one, this is kind of the last one and it's kind of icky. People have seen a man with a cord like a microphone cord wrapped around his neck. And they've also seen a man with like a bruised and like bloody neck. So again, (gasps) I personally don't think that he is still there just hanging around showing people like what happened to him. I think that they're just picking up on what happened, like the energy and the things that did happen there. I was going to say too, I feel like sometimes you might, think that what you're like that energy or whatever Mm -hmm. experience you're having seems like Tim because you know about the case but it's like maybe it's something disguised it's a a different type of like darker energy and it's like oh they'll think this is fine because this was a like a a good guy yeah someone just like taking on the form of diamonds be wild creepy (laughs) 
Or I also think sometimes like maybe you're just a little bit psychic and maybe you're seeing it, but it's not like you're seeing a ghost, like a spirit actually there. Like maybe you're just seeing. It's like that residual energy kind of. Yeah. Yeah. So that's Mm. interesting. That's all I have for haunting. So yeah, if anyone else has any, let me know. Yeah. I want to know if you have a direct line to Tim, we have, we have like, you know, some, I can't make, I have, my hands are too freakish. Small. Okay. <laughs> you can't Anyways, that's heart. a heart. <laughs> oh, there, that's a heart. You've got it, girl. Hearts for Tim. <laughs> oh, and his family. I know. So I thought it was really sweet though. I mean, the story that his parents had at the very like end of one of the documentaries. I love that, that, that Christmas was... one. And it's like Christmas it. time right now. And it, yeah. Oh. So sweet. Yeah, this is so Christmassy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so should we uh dip back into the tarot card yeah, just real should. quick? And yeah, because I know we have to let Elise go. Yeah. She's a, she's a very important high-powered <laughs> like lady person, business lady person. business lawyer <laughs> gal. <laughs> okay, so we had the Queen of Swords in reverse. The reverse interpretation is malice, bigotry, artifice, prudery, bail, and deceit. I mean, I don't know. Does anyone artifice, does deceit. anybody feel like we yeah. have to explain? <laughs> like, I think it's all there. And that's yeah, I feel like that's pretty, I mean, it's pretty spot on. Yeah. Okay. So what's interesting to me is we were talking about specifically though that Larry was just kind of a dickhead and a coward going around town in his dickhead mobile um (laughs) (laughs) the card is uh like the description of it it says it suggests familiarity with sorrow it does not represent mercy and her sword notwithstanding she is scarcely a symbol of power Hmm. i feel like that's just a that's a message directly for Larry. And I don't care if anybody has a direct line for him. because I have, <laughs> I have nothing to say to that. Okay, yeah. But, but that's for Larry for sure. That's very pointed. Yeah. So I don't know. Yeah. I think- Obviously deceit and malice. It's yikes. Do you have any feelings about the card? Yeah. It's super interesting. Um, I'm not like super well-versed in tarot card reading. So it's like super interesting to kind of have such a on-point card for yeah. this episode. Like we're very just like. yeah. <laughs> well, and we did just cleanse the deck because we were starting to feel like we maybe had some that were, we weren't sure if they were totally on point, but then we'd also get to the end of our cases and we'd be like, we'd go back and look and go, Okay. Well, yeah, no, that's right. (laughs) (laughs) We had a lot of those, but it felt like it was time to probably cleanse the energy of the decks and stuff. So I've got, uh, all of the selenite a girl can afford. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, and I said, I sent Cassie home with some too. Cause I was like, cleanse your deck. Okay. You need (laughs) cleanse. Cause we keep pulling. Well, I specifically keep pulling one card, for myself and it has popped up on the podcast now or for two of my cases now. So like I keep pulling this card for me, it's popping up in two other episodes. Like maybe this is 
um, my energy that this yeah, deck is picking know. up on, but I feel like we've gotten the queen of swords before, but I do think that sometimes we get repeaters because it's like, well, certain cards resonate with yeah. the types of, you know, energy that we're putting into the deck for these cases. Yeah. Right. Now, like, first word. Like, <laughs> yeah. 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 Really <laughs> crazy. <laughs> Oh my gosh. All right. Well, do you want to say our ending like catchphrase thing, which is have a creepy ass day? Sure. Have Have a a creepy creepy ass ass day. day. See you you next next Tuesday. Tuesday. So for all of you that are listening, if you have any true crime or paranormal stories that you want us to share, Maybe with the whole Pacific Northwest. Yes, we would love to read them on the pod. <laughs> yes, we will read them out loud. <laughs> Not just in our heads. Yes. <laughs> they don't have to be from the Pacific Northwest if you would like to share. Email us at pnwhauntsandhomicides at gmail.com. It's all spelled out, no special characters. Super duper easy peasy. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Same thing as the email at PNW Haunts and Homicides, all spelled out, no special characters. Please also rate and review us on whatever platform you're listening to and check out our stories on social media because our meme game is hot. (laughs) Agreed. And if you agree, like Caitlin, you can also find us on Patreon and support the show. Bitchin'. That spelled right. That I I copy pasted. <laughs> it's hmm, apolo okay. ap- gosh, apostolic. I think it's apolistic. Apolistic faith church. Do you know how to say that? Yeah, I think you're saying it correct. Apolistic? Apolistic. It's not like apple ap- because like I was thinking like the apostles or something. Is that like religion? <laughs> <I don't know. laughs>